You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, 14 lectures held in various locations between the 23rd of January and the 27th of December, 1910, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 1, given in Strasbourg on the 23rd of January, 1910, on the inauguration of the Novalis branch. Circumstances have dictated that a number of our friends here in Strasbourg have founded a second branch alongside the one that is already in existence. It is to bear the significant name Novalis branch. The friends from other places who have lovingly come to Strasbourg today have shown through their visit that they understand that branches can also exist alongside one another in a town, and that the many different ways of working in various fields do not need to exclude what we have to call the harmony and concord which must rule among all those who see themselves as members of our society as it is spread across the globe. And so let us also add this branch to the great stream which we call spiritual science. You, my dear friends, from the Novalis branch, have chosen a significant name as a signature, a symbol for your work. The name of Novalis belongs to a personality who most recently, that is, in its last incarnation, worked in the 18th century, a personality through whose whole being there flows, whose whole being is filled, with what we consider to be a sense which understands the spirit of spirituality. And in this way you have shown from the beginning that you want spiritual science to be something which is filled with immediate life, which you seek in all the places where it can be found, not just in this period or in another period, but as it lives through all periods, as it can flow into the world through one personality or another in many different ways. In Novalis in particular, we can see how the striving for knowledge of the spirit is something which can penetrate through and interweave with our ordinary everyday life. Of course, if we wanted to throw a light on the sources of the theosophical spirit in Novalis, then we would have to shine it into earlier incarnations of this noble spirit. And from these earlier incarnations, it would become clear to us how those things have transferred into the incarnation of Novalis which can only be theosophical spiritual life in the most profound sense. But even if we just look at the Novalis, who barely reached the age of 30, and who lived at the end of the 18th century, if we only observe this one incarnation, even then it can become clear to us that knowledge of the Spirit is not something that raises human beings up into a dreamy, fantastical world, which draws them away from direct reality, But we can see in many different ways, particularly in Novalis, how the spirit of reality, how real life, is given its value and true content by being penetrated with spiritual science. 
Novalis came from the nobility of central Germany, which had a certain, what I might call, materialistic piety, because that exists too, but not what one can really describe as a longing in the heart for real living spirit. Now, in order to fulfill Novalis's karma in the right way, it happened that Novalis's father, the old Hardenberg, in old age, even if he was not imbued with spiritual life, but because he joined the Herrenhuter sect, a pietistic sect, was filled with pious feelings in certain respects. And Novalis grew out of this milieu of central German nobility, which, as I said, at least had enough of the spirit so that even the old Hardenberg, in his later years, was able to come to a certain piety in the spirit, even if it was sectarian. This is what Novalis grew out of. He grew into, not what his family wanted, because that would have been some military or diplomatic post. He grew into a great period, into the time in which great mighty spirits were at work with professorships at a central German university in Thuringia. Thus at that time he would still have been able to hear Schiller lecture about history in Jena. Even if the scholarly historians of today say that Schiller was not on a scholarly level as a historian, what history should be in life, spiritual life, flowing through the whole of human development, that is what Schiller provided for the souls who heard him in Jena when he taught history. A great personality spoke through Schiller. The spirit spoke through this personality. It awakened the spirit. And another teacher was there when Novalis was young. Another teacher who, through the great energy of his spiritual life, did things in the field of philosophy which belong to the whole of humanity, but which are still little understood today. Fichte was at work at the time that Novalis was making his way into life. He worked in such a way that his whole bearing, Fichte's bearing, had something spiritual. It might be considered as something superficial, but anyone who has a feeling for these things will not consider it superficial that Fichte, when he gave his lectures in a dark lecture theatre in the evening and a candle was burning on his lectern, extinguished the candle with the words, So, my dear listeners, now the physical light has been extinguished. Now it is only the spiritual light that shall burn in this space. Demonstrating as if by magic the relationship between the spiritual and the physical, not just to the soul, but also in front of our eyes at the right moment, that has immense meaning for such receptive souls as that of Novalis. Such a soul can thereby become capable of receiving a belief in the spiritual life which cannot be shaken by anything. It flows through the soul with a noble sentiment which then remains throughout life when a Novalis in particular comes into such an environment. We cannot say that Novalis was someone airy-fairy. Those who believe that he was airy-fairy do not understand Novalis. No, the spirit living in Novalis said, it can be read in his writings today, the sleeping and waking states of human beings are two different things. When human beings are awake, then they have combined in them the inner soul. That is the name in the terminology of the time of what we would call the astral body today with the external body, 
the body enjoys the soul. Parenthesis, nice words which Novalis uses to express the relationship between the physical and the astral body. Close parenthesis. And in sleep, the soul is in a looser relationship with the body, Novalis says. And the body digests the soul when human beings are asleep. That, once again, is a nice, brief, concise description of a relationship which we also encounter in spiritual science. It is lovely when Novalis, on one occasion, writes in his notes, quote, We are always surrounded by a spiritual world. Wherever we are, there are always spiritual beings around us. It is simply up to human beings to externalize their self in such a way that they obtain an awareness of the spiritual beings who surround us wherever we are. Close quote. And once again, it is nice the way that he shows a profound understanding of the progress of esoteric human development and writes, quote, In ancient times, people tried to guide the soul into higher development through mortification and so on. In modern times, that has to be replaced by strengthening the soul, energy of the soul. The soul has to obtain power over the body through being strengthened. It must not be weakened as a result, and then has to exercise a certain sovereignty. Close quote. We could continue talking about Novalis like this for hours. Although we would not find a spirit who can express himself in the words and teachings as can be given by spiritual science today, we would find a spirit who, in his own words, expresses exactly the same thing. He was not someone airy-fairy, a fantasist. Even if his poetry followed the highest trajectory we can imagine and leads us into the highest worlds of feeling, Novalis was, and this applies to someone who did not reach the age of thirty, a practical spirit who studied at a mining academy, a mathematician through and through, who experienced mathematics as a great poem in accordance with which the divine spirit wrote the world, but who showed himself to possess all the practical skills that a mining engineer needs. Novalis was a spirit who, despite such a practical outlook, was able to implement for his feeling life, for his heart, directly in life, what he possessed as theosophical sentiment. Truly, what we know as his relationship with Sophie von Kuhn must not be seen as something connected with sensuality. He loved a girl who died at the age of fourteen. He really only started to love her passionately when she had already died. He felt that now he lived with her in the realm in which she had been since her death. He decided to follow her into death. His further life was a life together with a personality who was physically dead. All of this shows us what Novalis grew into through the strong feature of his spiritual nature. We can see in Novalis how, as human beings, we really only need to have one characteristic to have a sense for the spirituality which brings us spiritual science. We only need one characteristic, and this one characteristic is very difficult for human beings. People do not easily find access to spiritual science because it is so difficult for human beings. If we put a name to this one characteristic, then it appears to people as if everyone had it. 
Yet it is this characteristic whose absence prevents human beings from finding access to spiritual science. Truthfulness, an honest acceptance of what really is in the deepest depths of our soul. Many people apparently have it in their own opinion. Yet Novalis in particular presents an example of how there needs to be only one moment of true honesty and how human beings would have to admit to themselves through this one moment of true honesty what the spirituality in the world can mean for human hearts. Novalis's father had a certain trait of spirituality, otherwise he would not have joined the Herrnhutter sect, but his soul was not as free and honest as is meant here. That was prevented by what lived in his soul from the outer physical world. The physical world, with all its preconceptions, did not permit him to get up into the spiritual world, but his son did have this truthfulness. What could be more obvious than that the father could have no idea of what lived in his son? The physical world, with its division and lack of harmony, its untruthfulness which erected a partition here between what the young Novalis really was and what the old Hardenberg wanted to be but could not be because of his lack of real inner truthfulness, this physical world, with all the things which it turns human beings into, did not permit him to recognize the importance of his son while he was alive. His son had been dead for a few weeks, and the old Hardenberg was in his Herrnhutter community. The community sang the song, quote, What would I have become without you? What would I not be without you? Close quote. And as this song was being sung, the old Hardenberg had not heard it before, but at that moment everything ignited, which existed as spirit in his soul. He was given over to the great impression which streamed from this song, and at that moment his soul, grown honest, was filled with cosmic spirit, with spiritual life. And when the meeting had come to an end, the old Hardenberg asked someone who had written this song which had moved him so deeply. So he was told, quote, It is by your son. Close quote. It was first necessary that everything which came from the physical plane was forgotten for a moment, and then there lived in him briefly, without knowing about the person who had introduced it, pure truthfulness, pure objectivity, without the preconceptions of the physical plane. In this way, spirit would find spirit if we faced each other soul to soul, without the obstacles which come from the physical plane. At the moment in which human beings can find the soul of the other and the soul of the world in pure devotion to the truth, at every such moment they must be penetrated by what we might call theosophical spirituality. What we can call theosophical spirituality is not just based on some theory, some teaching, although we must never forget that for us human beings who are born to think a teaching is indispensable. But the essence of theosophy does not lie in the teaching. Anyone who wanted to emphasize that the teaching was superfluous and the only important thing was to cultivate what we call general brotherly love would have to have impressed on them that pontificating about general brotherly love cannot bring about such general brotherly love anywhere in the world. 
If we only pontificate about love, then for someone who knows about life, that is no different to telling your stove, quote, Dear stove, it befits you, your stovely love, to make the room warm. Close quote. But the room remains cold, however much we pontificate about love. But if we give it materials to make heat, wood and fire, then wood and fire are transformed into heat and the room is warmed up. The fuel for the human soul is the great ideals, the great thoughts we can assimilate, through which we recognize the connections in the world, through which we can learn the secrets of human destiny and human life. These are not thoughts which only fill us theoretically, but which make us inwardly warm, and the result of theosophical wisdom is love. And just as certainly as the stove warms the room because it heats up and not because it is being preached at, with the same certainty the teaching of the great thoughts which are at work in the world will make the soul loving. Because that is the secret of real wisdom, that it is transformed in the soul into love through its own strength. Anyone who has not yet found the path from wisdom to life only shows that they have not yet advanced far enough in wisdom. But anyone who would believe that the thoughts we assimilate about the evolution of the world, the evolution of humanity, about karma and so on, were of no consequence for human beings, should keep making it clear to themselves in their soul that these are not just human thoughts, that these are not just thoughts which we are the first to think, but that it is these thoughts which penetrate our soul, which the divine spirits have used to build the world. It is not our thoughts which appear before our spiritual eye, E-Y-E, in spiritual science, but the thoughts of the divine architects, the divine spirits of the world. What the gods of the world thought to themselves before the creation of the physical world is what we reflect in our thinking about spiritual science and in this way investigate what has flowed from the divine beings into the activity and development of the world to which we belong. And what the gods have thought is divine light. And anyone who does not want to think what the gods have thought does not, even though they do not know it, orient themselves toward the light but toward darkness. The only possible basis for a real development of the human soul is the one in which we start from what are the divine thoughts of the world. The spirits of the world have not given us these embryonic faculties for us to leave them lying fallow. They have been given to us so that we develop them. And since in this developmental cycle of humanity the thinking is our most important and outstanding ability, we have to start with the thinking. But we must not stop at the thinking. That leads us gradually to transform spiritual science into an attitude which allows us to understand the secrets of how knowledge leads to character traits, to traits of the mind. Knowledge properly understood leads to real traits of character, of mind. We can use a single example to make that clear for ourselves, can use it to make clear for ourselves that we human beings go through a sequence of ever new incarnations. 
What would be the purpose of those incarnations if they were not intended to make human beings ever more perfect? We have to look back from our present incarnation to previous incarnations and have to tell ourselves we have become what we presently are because in the course of one incarnation after the other various characteristics have been placed in our soul. Our soul has again and again assimilated forces and gathered experience. What is integrated into our soul in one incarnation then emerges in the following incarnation. We have now become the way we were prepared in previous incarnations. But then we can pause for a moment and say, we not only look back to the past, but we look forward to the future, to later, more perfect lives. What would this human life through all these incarnations be if we could not tell ourselves the further we develop into the future, the higher the stages which will have been achieved by what today is located in us as our I, capital. We can only guess at what we can still become because otherwise we would already be like that. We have to ascribe to ourselves the capacity to climb ever higher. But we have to look into the future with awe and reverence. We have to tell ourselves, even if we are able to understand this or that, are able to experience this or that in the world, the greater faculties which we can obtain will allow us to experience and understand many other things. It is impossible for someone who inscribes such a thought as has just been expressed in their soul to say, I can decide today what is true or false. I can make an ultimate judgment about what is true or false. The only thing which is befitting for such a person is to say, if I could make that decision today already, then it would be impossible for even higher faculties to arise in me in the future. And if that is transformed into an attitude, it will give us the modesty at every moment of our development, the truly dignified humility which we need to be true human beings. In this way, a knowledge of reincarnation is transformed into a sentiment, a feature of our character, into dignified humility, into true modesty. We could put it as follows. Anyone who understands today that they pass through a sequence of incarnations and keep rising higher in their development would have to be a fool if they were to say that they were perfect or if they were to say, it is not necessary for me to learn today because tomorrow I will experience things of a quite different order of magnitude. Knowledge turns into real features of our character. And looked at in the right way, every spiritual scientific insight turns into a feature of our character. But it is possible for us to understand that should we not be able to use our powers at any stage of our existence, then these powers would not have been given to us from the spiritual world. If we wanted to wait until the world has reached its state of perfection, thinking that we first had to be so perfect that we had ultimate knowledge and experience, then we would not have to pass through different incarnations. In other words, we have to be clear that we have to use our cognitive powers in every incarnation. We must not say, I only want to obtain knowledge in the next incarnation or at the end of my existence. For all our humility and modesty, we should use the powers we have.
Thus a justified human sense of self is set alongside the humility and modesty which flows directly out of our being penetrated with the divine spiritual. And it says to us, It is true that our knowledge will only be perfect when we have reached a high stage, but we can make it perfect precisely by being aware today already of our human dignity and using our powers today already. In this way our character will obtain something which can be compared with a set of scales. We can place on the one side of the scales humility and modesty, and on the other side a justified sense of self, courage in making judgments, and can say, we have reached a certain stage in cognition, in self-consciousness. In short, we will find that whenever we simply try to introduce into our feelings what spiritual science teaches, the teachings or theories of spiritual science are transformed in our soul because they contain the thoughts of the divine spirits, are transformed in our soul, in our character, in our endeavor, our feeling. This can show us that in spiritual science the teaching, the theory, may not be the main thing, but that it is the kindling, we might say, for the development of the human soul that it is the thing which is intended to bring out higher characteristics in our soul. And anyone who demands this characteristic without knowledge lives in the worst form of deception, in self-deception, the self-deception which has entered human evolution because in the course of earth development other beings have also entered and have been involved in our evolution, beings which were not just harmful but also useful. But however useful they were in that they brought us freedom and a sense of self, we nevertheless have to be clear that these gifts from the so-called Luciferic beings, freedom and sense of self, must not degenerate to become extreme and radical, because then they become pride and arrogance. And pride and arrogance applied to knowledge lead such knowledge into darkness. Knowledge is acceptance of the divine light of divine thoughts. Rejection of knowledge is something which leads into darkness, and neither can it lead to higher characteristics in the soul. If we look at spiritual science in this way, then we will recognize it as one of the most important matters in humanity. We will recognize it as something which we do not just for our own sake, but because we are aware of our duty toward humanity and its development. We live today in a time which is not completely unimportant. We live in an important time. It is true that people who live in a given period often say that they live in a transitional period. Every period of human development has already been described as a transitional period, but not all of them have been such important transitional periods. But of our time today it can truly be said that it is a transitional period. In what respect is that the case? Let us look at the character of another transitional period. A transitional period in human development occurred, for example, when the predecessor of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, appeared. When John the Baptist appeared, he told people what was later repeated by Jesus Christ in the significant words, quote, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Close quote. What does that mean? 
We will understand what that means if we recall that human beings, as they developed from incarnation to incarnation, underwent various characteristics in their soul. In ancient times of our past, human beings did not yet possess the characteristics and soul faculties which they have today. It was possible for all human beings in ancient times to develop a dull, hazy, dreamlike clairvoyance to look into the spiritual world. All human beings had the possibility not just to see the physical, but look into the spiritual world. But human beings in the time when such clairvoyance was widespread did not yet have something which they have today, a clearly developed self-consciousness. Human beings at that time could not yet, in a clear way, say to themselves, quote, I am, close quote. A firm stance at the center of our inner being could only be obtained in that the ancient clairvoyance disappeared for a while. Human beings had to put up with separation from the spiritual world in order to develop a clear self-consciousness here on the physical plane. Later on, such clairvoyance will once again develop together with self-consciousness so that the two characteristics will occur together again and human beings will possess them again. So we can look back to a time in the distant past. At that time, it was possible for human beings if they did not pay attention to the physical, if they closed their eyes and turned away from the physical and made their ears ignore the sounds, that they then looked into the spiritual world and were able to obtain direct certainty of the existence of the spiritual world. These characteristics waned and were increasingly replaced by the ability of thinking, the ability of self-consciousness to draw conclusions of independent judgment, those things which make up our daytime consciousness today. We can put an approximate date on the time when it gradually happened that the ancient clairvoyant faculties disappeared completely from human faculties. Before about the year 3101 BC, almost all people on earth were still endowed with a hazy clairvoyance. Then, from that year onward, it began to decrease more and more. It became increasingly weak. But that made ego consciousness, self-consciousness, judgment, drawing conclusions, self-aware thinking, grow. So the light of spirituality grew dark, and that which is the human eye, capital, dawned and became brighter and brighter. The interior of human beings became brighter, but spirituality grew darker. That is the year in which what Oriental philosophy calls the Kali Yuga, the dark black age, began. Something was there which, at the time that John the Baptist appeared as the predecessor, followed by Jesus Christ, reached a crisis, we might say, a decision. They had to tell humanity, you now have to learn that there is spirituality, although you do not see such spirituality with any spiritual eyes. You have to learn that the realms of heaven are here. You have to understand this from out of your own eye. That is why Christ had to incarnate into a physical body, because self-consciousness in the Kali Yuga was only able to perceive the spirit on the physical plane. 
That time was a transitional period. The old faculties had disappeared. If people at the time had not heard the call of the Baptist, of Jesus Christ, they would have declined at that stage and not managed to progress any further. Those who heard these voices had to recognize the God who had descended as far as physical corporeality. They understood that the realms of heaven had come close to the eye, capital. Christ was in the physical body of Jesus of Nazareth for three years. That was the time in which human beings were only able to see with physical eyes when a God descended to them. We are once again living in a transitional period, in a crisis. The Kali Yuga came to an end in about 1899, and now new characteristics are developing in human beings even if they do not know it. New characteristics are developing in human souls in a natural way. It is no proof to the contrary that so many people know nothing about it. A hundred years after Christ, Tacitus still referred to an unknown sect of the Christians, and in Rome people still told after Jesus Christ had fulfilled the mystery of Golgotha seventy to eighty years beforehand, of a sect which was supposed to live in a side street and was led by a certain Jesus. The most important events had passed by innumerable people. If people fail to perceive something, it is no proof that this most important, crucial and incomparable thing does not exist. Since about 1899, faculties have been developing unnoticed in human beings, which will emerge in the mid-thirties of the twentieth century, in about 1933 to 1937. Then these soul faculties will emerge in a whole range of people, because their time has arrived. Faculties of etheric clairvoyance will arise. They will be there. Just as there were people with an extremely developed ego consciousness when Christ was there, there will be people in our century who will see not just with physical eyes, but who will experience, as a natural development, what strives to come down from spiritual levels so that soul and spiritual faculties will emerge from their soul and they will enter etheric existence. And the fortune of these people will be to understand the new world that they will see. One thing is true and as such important for our souls. When Jesus Christ said, quote, I am with you always, even unto the end of our earth cycle, close quote. He is here. Since that time he has been in our earth environment. And when the spiritual eyes open, they will see him will see him like Paul saw him in the event at Damascus. That is something which will happen in about 1933, that he will be seen as an etheric being, as a being which, although he has not descended to physical existence, can be seen in his etheric body, because a certain number of people will then ascend into the etheric. But these people will lack understanding, if they have not been prepared through spiritual science for what they will see. That is why we are living in a transitional period, because we are growing into a new way of seeing. Spiritual science has the responsible task 
of preparing human beings for the great moment in which, although he will not appear in the flesh, that was only possible once, he is here, and he will return in a form in which those whose eyes have been opened will see him in the world which is only visible to clairvoyant eyes. Human beings will grow upward toward him. That is what the return of Christ will be a growing upward of human beings into the sphere in which Christ is. But they would stand there uncomprehendingly if they were not prepared through spiritual science for this great moment. Such preparation must be serious because it is full of responsibility. Humanity has to be prepared that more will be seen than was seen hitherto unless human beings take this faculty into darkness and make it wither. Because that could also happen, that the twentieth century passes by without leading to the fulfillment of this goal. We have the responsible task of preparing human beings for this great moment through spiritual science. But we must prepare human beings spiritually, make them understand that only the Spirit will encounter Christ with opened spiritual eyes. A materialistic view might believe that Christ will appear once again in a physical body, but that would not be spiritual, but materialistic. If we human beings believe that, we would not have the will to work our way up to the Spirit. That is why in this time certain prophecies from the book of Revelation will be fulfilled, counting and building on the materialistic spirit. Individuals will appear in a physical body who will say that they are the reincarnated Christ, and those will fall victim to them who have not been led to a proper understanding through spiritual science because Maya will be great and the possibility of self-deception immense. Temptation will grow to become enormous. Only a knowledge of the Spirit which is aware of its responsibility will bring human beings to an understanding of what is meant to happen. These reflections were intended to show how spirituality through spiritual science is meant to work in individual human souls and that a knowledge of the Spirit is a task of our time because we can say of our present time, important things lie ahead of us. But because the most important things might be completely overlooked by humanity in the darkness, because the great moment could pass without human beings seeing it, that is why spiritual science has to act in the right way. Penetrating with our spirit what has been communicated to us by spiritual research will provide the spirituality in each branch which we need in order to develop our own souls to an ever higher level so that we can serve humanity more and more. Let us seek to reflect often that the saying applies to our time as much as it did at the time of Christ. Repent ye, because the time is at hand. If at that time the words were, quote, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, close quote, today we have to look prophetically into the immediate future and say, because the human eye, capital, is close to the kingdom of heaven. Let us prepare ourselves through the right kind of spiritual science 
so that we can enter worthily into the kingdom which calls on us. And we ourselves can only prosper if we find the way to the kingdom of heaven. If we digest what we have as experiences on earth and in turn allow what we experience in higher spiritual existence to arise again, offer it as a great sacrifice at the altar of divine existence, then we fulfill in dignity our purpose as human beings to the fullest extent. Let your activity here be imbued both by the spirit of Novalis and the spirit of spiritual science itself, which has come before our soul, and you will see that your activity will take a good course. Because if our activity is imbued with such an attitude, then what we call the light of the masters of wisdom and harmony of feelings will flow into it while we are gathered in our branches. We are never without the help of these advanced individualities when we come together with the right attitude in our branches. May such a spirit unite you. May such a spirit, which at the same time is the spirit of the masters of wisdom, ensoul you. Act in this spirit, and your activity will be part of the great work of spiritual science. Your activity will be part of the attitude which must penetrate the whole world. The end of Lecture 1